Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Uh, Those words may be familiar to you. They're the opening words of uh, John Piper's great work, Let the Nations Be Glad. And those words, they not only uh, stress the centrality, the aim of worship, but they stress also a fundamental characteristic of our God, that He is a God on mission. He has a vision and heart for mission. And as we continue to work through Matthew's gospel, having entered into chapter 13 and begun to examine the parables of Jesus, we come to two parables this morning, two very short parables that kind of work and go together that have very much a missionary kind of thrust or tone to them. These two parables, some have called the little seed parables or the little power uh, parables. And indeed, they have this missionary tone, uh, kind of a a kingdom expansion thrust, an ever-widening influence of the king's rule in the world, uh, of God's word and presence and gospel. And so if you would turn to Matthew chapter 13, we'll read verses 31 to 35. Just a few verses. Matthew 13, verse 31. Listen now to God's word. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Quote, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. These two parables that we've just uh, read are the third and fourth parables in chapter 13 that Jesus has provided. And perhaps you've noticed a common theme throughout all four. Uh, They all contain imagery of agriculture, agricultural uh, pictures. Uh, They contain a sower, each one of them, seeds or a a seed, a a field. Uh, In the first parable, we remember in chapter 13, it was the parable of the sower. And we learn that the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer, a sower, who went out and sowed seed, which is the, the word of the kingdom, the word of the gospel. And he sowed this seed widely and broadly, And this word, the seed, fell on various kinds of ground, which we learn from Jesus is related to or compared to the human heart. It fell in many places. And on one place it fell, called the good soil, the seed took deep root, and it began to produce this abundant harvest, reminding us and teaching us, as John Calvin said, as the word of the gospel moves through the vestibule of the mind, 
into the sanctuary of the heart, it will produce this tremendous harvest. It has to move through the mind and get into the place of the affections where there is desire, and it produces this tremendous uh, harvest result. Then, in the second parable, it was the parable of the wheat and weeds, or the wheat and tares, which we saw last week. And we learned there that in God's kingdom, not only is good seed being sown by the Son of Man, by Christ himself, uh, sowing sons and daughters of the kingdom, but God, in his mysterious plan and will, has permitted corrupt seed to also be sown in this field, in God's world, by the evil one. Reminding us, teaching us, that until the harvest, at the end of history, to live in God's kingdom means to live in a world in the midst of opposition, an enemy, evil influence. Uh, that we're salt and light in the world that is full of evil. We are sheep in the midst of wolves. And now we come to these two very short parables, the mustard seed and yeast, or leaven. And we see several significant points, but... It seems at the heart of both of these parables is this principle, this idea of the kingdom's improbable progress. Its growth, its influence uh, appears improbable, unlikely, even doubtful. A mustard seed has a tiny beginning. I asked Shelley if we had mustard seeds. She said we do. I had them on the desk at the house this morning, then I thought, why would I bring them? The whole point is that you can't see them. It's too small. So I left them. <laughs> so I could do this. Here's the mustard seed. They are quite small. Uh, so it seems inconsequential. Uh, and, and Jesus is wanting his disciples to see and understand the kingdom, not merely in its fullness, but in its potential in the potency that's contained in the small seed. And sometimes our confidence, our assurance, will rest in something that is full or the result of something, but not in its potential. Jesus wants his disciples not to be discouraged, but to, to recognize the potential in this very small beginning, so critical in the life of faith and the life of the church. But not only to understand the, the improbable progress, but what appears at times to be invisible progress. Where nothing seems to be happening in my Christian faith and life, or in the life of the church, or in the life of the kingdom, or in the advancement of godliness in the culture. And so it's like leaven hidden in three measures of flour. You don't see the yeast working, but indeed it is. And Jesus wants to drive that home. Now, I want us to step back just for a moment to be reminded of why Jesus is telling these parables at all. He has told them uh, uh, to communicate the nature of the kingdom of heaven. They're, they're all thus far about the kingdom of heaven. He began his ministry in chapter 4, preaching, repent, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. George Ladd, in his classic work, The Gospel of the Kingdom, defines the kingdom of heaven as God's kingship, his rule, his authority. Uh, another author said, the kingdom of heaven is God's authority and God's power displayed in the person of Jesus. 
A kingdom has a king. And what do kings do? They rule. Kings rule. But let's remember where we live. In the West, in the U.S., we do not live in the world of kingdoms and kings. We live in the world of democracy. People would say we live in a democratic republic. Our society and our normal experience is built on the idea of a representation of the people, not rule over the people. That's our experience. Freedom from kingship, not submission to kingship. And not only is the idea of kingship absent from our experience, where where a, a king has authority over the life and death of his people, but our history as a nation is absolutely opposed to kingship. Now, this is important as we submit ourselves to Christ, the king's rule. And we in our country have symbols reminding us of our freedom, rightly so. Some of those reminders come by way of state mottos and state flags. Being new to the New England area, I've seen some of those mottos on the license plates of people's cars And they are indeed on state flags. Some of our state flags seem quite innocent. I recently saw Rhode Island's. If you've seen Rhode Island's state flag, it's simply a a circle of stars uh, surrounding a ship's anchor with the word hope. Seems innocent. Or Vermont, it's a simple pine tree next to uh, three sheaves of uh, wheat. And I think there is a cow. It is pictures of agricultural industries. And then you have the words freedom and unity. But not all state flags are that way. Have you seen Virginia's state flag? It's a a, a blue, it's a wonderful blue background. And then on the middle of the state flag is a circle. And inside that circle is a man lying on his back. The crown has fallen off his head. It's a king. It's very likely a dead king. And standing over this dead king is a woman with a spear in her hand and her foot on his chest. And underneath are the words, Sic Semper Tyrannus. Thus, always to tyrants. Right? Is the message clear? If you seek to rule us by a king, this is what we will do. We will send our women after you. No. (laughs) She apparently represents virtue, if you look up the commentary. But when we read Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or he teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come. Or the kingdom of heaven is like in these parables. We're reading something that human nature is averse to. People don't naturally want to be ruled. We don't naturally want that. We want freedom. And so we see as a part of uh, all of the kingdom parables, and indeed we see it in both of these particular parables, our Lord's kingdom is intrusive in certain ways. It is intrusive. Kings do not say, whatever I can do to serve your will or your ambitions or your life purpose, I'm here for you. It's not what kings do. It's not what they say. The rule of a king 
can be very inconvenient in life. We've experienced that, any of us who are following after the Lord Jesus can be inconvenient because kings believe such things as their honor is more important than yours. Their agenda is more important than yours. Their honor and will is more important than yours. But it's even more than that. They believe you should be joyful and happy about giving yourself to their will and agenda, even giving your life for it. And so the kingdom, it can intrude, disrupt. It comes into our world and life and it calls us to something much greater than ourselves. And indeed, Jesus is communicating that very reality in these parables. And notice some of the distinctives about this king and his kingdom and how his kingdom is manifest. For one, as I noted, it has this improbable progress. It seems doubtful. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows, it's larger than all garden plants. It turns out that Jesus was quite a fan of the mustard seed. We, we see him use it in several uh, places. Later in Matthew 17, he's going to refer to it. When his disciples cannot cast out uh, a demon from a child, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. But what is he communicating? Well, the size of the seed again. Or in Luke 17, he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Jesus is using the mustard seed, and he uses it several times, to challenge his disciples' thinking, to help cause a shift in their thinking. That it is not as much about the size of their faith as it is about the size of their Savior, ultimately. Where they are sincerely placing their trust in their lives. That he holds the power. The power is not merely in their faith, they can have a small faith, but if it is in him and it is sincere, it can produce tremendous results. When Jesus says the mustard seed, it's the smallest of all seeds, he's actually not suggesting there isn't a smaller seed in the world. We know that there is. He's using language, proverbial language, to communicate a point, and the point really centers on the size of the mustard seed, the size of the seed in its beginnings, and its disproportionate size, its disproportionate effect later in its fullness. There's a disproportion there. And he wants to focus the disciples' confidence not merely in what the kingdom is going to be in its fullness, but its power and potency in its beginning. Because he doesn't want them to lose hope. He does not want them to be discouraged. Here they are in this new movement in many ways. A small band of people. On what do they place their hope and their rest? The end? The, the fullness of this kingdom? They don't see that. There's something small. And yet they still ought to have confidence. When we are in the midst of circumstances 
that seems small or insignificant or very difficult, upon what are we placing our faith? Is it the result of something that does not exist, or is it in the king, in his potential, and his power? Very critical for a life in Jesus Christ. Uh, The disciples, even the crowds, often misunderstood his kingship and the way of his kingdom. If you recall in John chapter 6, after one of the episodes of the feeding of the thousands, it says when the people saw the sign that he had done, they wanted to make him king by force. And so he withdrew. Not only did they want a, a king who might overthrow Roman authority, the oppression that they were feeling, but they wanted his kingdom to come immediately and to come big. Jesus is teaching something different here. And we live in that kind of culture, an American culture that in many ways demands immediate results and loves big things. I read just this past week an article helping to prepare exchange students transition into America in American culture. Uh, The title says a lot, Go Big or Go Home, Everything is Bigger in the USA. Uh, We're perhaps used to this, but uh, for those transitioning into American culture, it could be quite a shock. And the article spoke about big cars, big houses, big business, big stores. That we don't just have stores, we have superstores. We don't just have markets, we have supermarkets. Uh, just this past summer on our family's drive back from the Cape, we wanted to stop by and see Plymouth Rock. And we had not seen it before. It represents such a monumental point in time in our land's history, the supposed point of the Mayflower's landing. And I thought, surely the rock must be pretty big. And then we approached and I began to wonder, where is this rock? Where is this rock? And we came to the monument, the pillars surrounding it. I peered down, looked onto the sand, and there's the rock. And actually, the tour guide, he was, he was pretty quick to point out that apparently it was three or four times the size, but through erosion, it's gotten smaller. Small rock, really. Small beginning. Small number of pilgrims. And yet, as we even in just over a week, celebrate Thanksgiving, we know how small things, small beginnings, can over time have radically transforming effects. And so it is in the church. So it is in the kingdom of God. Frederick Dale Bruner writes, What this parable of the mustard seed is asking of us is to have confidence in the little gospel. The gospel goes out as a small seed, Little but alive, and it comes back with big things like food, shade, and shelter for the nations. All right, the seed appears unimpressive, inconsequential, insignificant. And sometimes we can feel that way in our life of faith. The future may appear in doubt at times, seed-like, small. Living in God's kingdom can appear unimpressive, tiny. The world just overlooks it at times, often. But we should be reminded this was the way of our Lord Jesus Christ in his life, in his earthly ministry. 
Isaiah 53 tells us he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He had an obscurity about him, outwardly unimpressive. His earthly ministry, his earthly kingship was marked by sorrow and suffering, not dominance or a ruling over. And it ended on a cross, not a throne, in his earthly ministry, his humiliation. That cross, the very center of our redemption and also the center of our pattern for how we are to live. Remember how the seed grows. Just in examining the parable of the mustard seed, I was drawn to another seed that Jesus speaks about in John chapter 12, a seed in which he is referring to himself. He said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. The mustard seed is small. God often uses small things. Small things, weak things to accomplish great, great purposes. We heard read earlier from 1 Corinthians. Paul reminded the church in Corinth of their own limitations and weakness. And yet God's power. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you wise, according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what's weak to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The kingdom, it is intrusive. It has this improbable, doubtful progress. It's also a kingdom that is invisible often. We don't see uh, the king at work. It doesn't appear before us. That's part of what comes through in the parable of the leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Uh, Some suggest that while the picture of the mustard seed emphasizes this outward effect, you have the birds of the air coming and making their nests, uh, the yeast has a more inward emphasis and effect. Uh, D.A. Carson said it has an inward and intensive transformation about it. An inward and intensive transformation. Much could be said about uh, yeast and the relationship of yeast to flour. For one, it comes from outside the flour. It it is alien to the flour. The, The transformation does not originate from within. It comes from without, and then it makes contact. And it must make contact. The king's rule takes up residence in a person's life, if we're thinking individually here. Uh, The active agent is not the flower, it's the yeast, but it must come in contact. And then it's applied, and it spreads, and it, it leavens secretly and silently. You may see the dough rising over time, 
But the process, it makes no noise, nor is seen by the human eye. And when we think about our life of faith, you may not feel that you are making the progress you would like in your Christian life. You may not be at a point of uh, growth that you might desire. And yet His Word is reminding us, God, by His Spirit and grace and Word, is indeed at work. Jesus didn't want His disciples, nor does He want us to become discouraged when we don't see particular kinds of evidences or particular kinds of fruits. It's natural to doubt, to become discouraged, downcast. But the picture here of yeast working reminds us God's at work. Believe His Word more than what our eyes might perceive. We have to rest in His Word in that way. And then finally, His kingdom in in both parables has this all-inclusive aspect. There's a picture of completion, fullness in both of them in the end. The mustard seed grows to a fullness in which the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Perhaps, as some suggest, a picture of the blessing of the kingdom to the nations. And then the yeast works through all the flour, all the dough, till it was all leavened. And so until the consummation or until the Lord calls you or me home, He is not finished with us. He's not finished with us. He's still at work in us. There's more worship to be had, uh, more sins to repent of, to be overcome, more forgiveness to be known, souls to be redeemed. Two powerful images, a tree and bread. Tree and bread. We see that elsewhere in Scripture. Tree of life. Jesus saying, I am the true vine. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. The bread of life. I am the bread of life in John 6. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for just these few verses and the power of your word to capture the truth of your kingdom. We pray, O Lord, that your kingly rule would have its way in our lives, that we would yield to your kingship, to your rule and lordship over us. We pray, O Lord, that you would break, even crush our hearts, that we might rest and have peace in you, not in the things of the world. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would continue to progress, to advance in our own lives, in the life of this congregation. Lord, as we trust in your word. Well, Lord, you have our hearts and we want to yield before you. We thank you, O God, that you are indeed at work by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that we might submit ourselves to you, enjoying your presence your guidance in our lives. And Lord, we thank you that we can walk this journey together as your people, living underneath your word, that it would master us, O God. In this we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen.